Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. If we are able to put in things that are small steps forward, but then allow us to take even small steps backwards if they don't work, then I think we're in a pretty good situation. With so much talk of cities becoming more climate conscious, as well as planners using the current moment to shift their view of the future, we discuss why now is the time to push for a greener recovery from the global pandemic. Revolutionaries, take note. We also speak with a New Zealand architect to find out about how respect for the landscape and collaboration with its indigenous people can help urban planning act as a tool for social change. That's all coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to today's show. The parts of our urban landscape that citizens focus most on has rapidly changed over the past year. Green spaces have gone from spare land to valued commodities. Air quality has yo-yoed back and forth as lockdowns have come and gone. And transport hubs, once teeming with life, have teetered on obscurity. With so much uncertainty in long-term planning, now it's surely the time for a recovery plan which includes both our citizens and our environment. Rambol is an engineering, architecture and consultancy company dealing with sustainable environments. Born in the Nordic region, they have sustainability in their DNA and their global reach allows them to connect to projects on a local level. Elad Eisenstein is the Director of Cities and Regeneration at Rambol and he joins me now. Elad, has this year changed your business and the sort of calls you're getting? Or were you already pursuing big ideas that haven't really been changed much by the pandemic coming along? I think what we are seeing is a focus on regeneration, mainly through the fact that we've started the journey on getting to become more sustainable, more resilient to challenges of global climate issues, economic instability, poverty, you know, all the big questions we have around the world. We've started to respond to those. But I guess what the pandemic has shown us is that instead of building, keeping building and constructing new pieces of city, new pieces of infrastructure, which we have to do, so it's not instead, it's actually in parallel. In parallel to that, we also have to get back into looking into our own cities, the ones we have at the moment, and looking at how they work much better in a regenerative way. And I think that means that instead of building, and I think the numbers show us that we have to build possibly something in the region of a city of one million people every week in order to get into, you know, supplying our population growth and serving that. Instead of doing that and expanding infinitely, what is better and what we possibly can do much better is look inwardsly, looking into the cities as we have them at the moment and working with the assets we have in them to create better environments for our society. But do you think the game's changed for cities? And I guess this is the complicated thing because it puts all of us, especially specialists like yourself, in a complicated position because you've got to try and guess what this pandemic is going to do like the rest of us. And if it's over in a year's time, then maybe some of the conversations will be very different to the fact that if it's going to malinger with us for five years, for 10 years, that we'll still be adapting our behaviour around it. Then what the built environment is, even the demand for transport, whether people will want to be in cities, 
all of those things are slightly up for grabs until we know what's happening. Doesn't that make your job at saying to city authorities, okay, this is the direction of travel that we believe you should go in, slightly complicated until we see how oddly medical advances progress first before you can make these decisions about the built environment? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to go back to basics. And I think there's nothing more important, you know, in our cities than human connectivity. You know, that's the lifeblood of our cities. And that's not going to change. You know, cities have been here for, you know, hundreds of years and or thousands even. And, you know, they've always overcome these challenges and sometimes even greater than what we have at the moment across history. So I think what we have to do is kind of be a little bit calm about this and and really look at the basics. You know, the basics are, you know, that we have to create space for people to come together and we have to create space that possibly brings our built environment and the unbuilt environment, mainly nature, closer together. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, the pandemic has shown us that we can see the future a little bit from kind of a sustainable lens. You know, we have seen better air quality conditions across cities. We have seen, you know, nature kind of penetrating back into our urban environments. We have seen lower levels of noise in our built environment. So it can be done. But I guess the challenge is, how do you deliver that and balance that with the economic conditions that we need in order to get our cities running? You know, we are seeing a slowing down of people using public transport, for example. You know, how do we get those back and by when is a big question. But I think at the same time, we are seeing kind of a revival of cycling and, you know, slow movements in our cities and pedestrian movement, you know, increasing. And and that's good. You know, we are seeing different ways in which we can move around, different ways in which we can interact. And we can use some of those things that we are being witnessing, really, in order to deliver better regeneration. And I think there are clues to work with, but I think a lot of it is really going back to the plans we already had and now finding maybe a new lens in order to introduce those and address this pandemic. Yes, because I guess that everyone says that they love a quiet street, but actually the reason that many of our streets are quiet is because people have lost their jobs and shops have closed and businesses have gone bust is because there's nowhere for people to go to work that's the the reason they're quiet not just because of positive things so i guess that's going to be difficult to navigate but you're seeing this as an opportunity to look at some of the positive things that have come forward certainly around transport and i know that one of the things that you've been looking at is even how we use more public realm and this notion that there's a back of pavement line. Could you explain to listeners where you're looking for extra space for more public realm to be found? Yeah, well, I mean, I think public realm in its kind of wider sense is really critical. And I, th- I think what we see now during the pandemic is it's, you know, it's even more critical. We've seen it during the lockdowns, particularly, and maybe now with the second wave, you know, we do see how important it is to get out of home and, you know, being much more in in the outdoors. So I think in order to do that in in an effective way, we have to kind of look at the outdoors, I guess, in its wider sense. We plan cities based on ownership structures and, you know, kind of historic land ownership structures, but also what's a road, what's a building, you know, typology and so forth. I think what we have to start looking at is how those interact and connect together. So, you know, we might walk, you know, doing shopping on our pavements and, you know, look around our streets where we have trees planted and cars moving around and everything. But I think it's equally important to look at what happens inside those buildings that face our streets, you know, what's happening with our high streets that for years we've been challenged now with e-commerce and, you know, what to do with our retail, you know. But equally, they are important to our livelihoods, in our neighborhoods. So I think it's quite important to look across those 
from within the buildings, from the courtyards, from the way we live and work within those buildings and how we interface with our streets. If we engage at that level, I think we have a greater chance in, in addressing the way we can create our cities to be even much more productive for us. Another point that I know you've raised in, in some of the things you've been talking about recently is this idea of rethinking some of our transport hubs and making them more places where meaningful urban living happens as well. What's the thought here? Well, again, I mean, that's not a new idea. I think what we are seeing in cities now is the idea that transport hubs are more than transport hubs. You know, we are seeing places like, you know, King's Cross, St. Pancras, you know, urban districts that are growing and maturing and regenerating over the course of the years, which have been underpinned by the increased connectivity through the transport hubs. But we are seeing those transport hubs being more than transport hubs. A lot of the people going through those stations I've mentioned they don't travel. You know, they do their daily lives there. They get their groceries. They go and meet people around the corner. Some others travel. They use them for travel. So I think what we are seeing for sure is a global trend or trajectory, which is very positive, where the multifunctionality of stations offers greater opportunities for underpinning, you know, greater successful and more sustainable urban environments, but also at the same time allows us to think of how we use buildings in the greater sense in a flexible, adaptable way. Can I ask you a slightly different question? At the moment, we're seeing in real time the re-engineering of our cities in interesting ways. So here in London, whether it's putting plastic bollards down the middle of roads to separate traffic and make more space for cycle lanes. We're seeing you know, stickers on the floor directing us how to manoeuvre around the city. All of this is being done in a reasonably cheap DIY ad hoc way. And that's how the city is being re-engineered at the moment. But what you're talking about here is a commitment to a bigger vision, to more money being spent. But as we look at what's happening to the coffers of governments all around the world, is there going to be the kind of commitment to spending big on big projects, on delivering real change like this? Or do you think we are going to end up more in this kind of DIY world for a little while? Well, I think it's going to be a bit of both. I think, again, we have to look at the wider picture. So if we're in a city like London, which is kind of polycentric, multicentric, with lots of connectivity across public transport, then I guess we have possibly the luxury of being able to chop and change. You know, we are able to play with a lot of pull and push a lot of levers to be able to kind of close things down or open them up. I know it sounds easy. It's not easy at all. It's a difficult job and, and very impactful to communities. But I think what we can do is inject jobs into local environments. We don't have a kind of centrally located CBD where everyone goes to work. You know, we, we work in multiple locations. So I guess those types of things with new types of mobility that are, as you say, kind of a bit cheaper and, and more flexible, possibly allow us to take kind of small steps towards addressing kind of the challenges of the pandemics before we get kind of a clarity on where this goes. I guess if you look at other parts of the world, it's not exactly the same situation. You know, we see a lot of cities around the world where, you know, they are heavily dependent on centrally located employment areas, you know, like CBD, central business districts, where everyone has to basically rely on public transport and in worse scenarios on the car to get to work and then going back to the kind of suburban environments to live. So over there, I guess the challenges are even greater when you have to start thinking about, you know, how you shift that or play with that to inject, again, that density into those suburban environments is a greater challenge because 
they will work better when they are working closer and in a much more integrated way with public transport. But again, you have to put the infrastructure in and it costs a lot of money. So I guess this is where we have to somehow look at the city in its wider sense, how it's structured, how it's kind of looking at itself in the next 20 years with its growth projections and so forth, but also the big systems, you know, is it worth investing in infrastructure now when we don't know what's going to happen or putting in place things that are temporary, looking at them at trials, letting residents kind of test them out and see whether they work and then take it as small steps. And I think that's the important thing. If we are able to put in things that are small steps forward, but then allow us to take even small step backwards if they don't work, then I think we're in a pretty good situation, you know, possibly looking forward in the next 12 to 18 months. But don't you think it'd be difficult to go to central government at a point now, for example, if you think of a project in London like Crossrail, billions of pounds, years off schedule, a bit of a nightmare for the whole city. Who would now dare to say, OK, we're going to build capacity for hundreds of thousands more people to commute into London at this moment? And that's why I come back to it. I, you know, I think these big visions are very good. But I think that in central government, while people may talk the talk, they're going to be more concerned about plastic bollards going down the middle of our roads. They're going to be in it for the cheap fixes until we get through this pandemic. And that's why I just worry that while people talk about these big visions about delivering sustainability and this connection between you know, environment and transport, that actually people are going to be very cautious about spending on anything that looks like a, a big ticket item and wait and just wait and see what happens in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think you've got to be able to do a bit of both and, and have trust in our cities. You know, they've proven for years and years to be, you know, the most energy efficient, to be the most socially engaging and stimulating environments. You know, the whole revival we had around kind of our learning environments, kind of being integrated into our urban and so forth, they've been hugely successful, you know, and, and we have seen those trends improving in many areas. In the same time, we've seen them kind of maybe, I guess, engaging other parts or neglecting other parts of our cities which didn't have a response to. So I think it is good in that sense to find the balance through those temporary measures and being able to maybe look at how our cities would work if, for example, we close streets temporarily, see what happens. You know, if we start to introduce kind of locally based jobs, maybe in local neighborhoods, you know, see what happens. And I think at the same time, as you say, you know, when the streets are empty with people having kind of struggling to kind of find a job or even get to their work, you know, people use more kind of technology and we somehow evolve into um, an environment where we have to do a bit of both. And I think we are in a period where we have to do kind of a trial and check and see what happens. At the same time, I think we have to have confidence in the future and in the fact that our cities have survived this for hundreds of years and they possibly will as well. Elad Eisenstein, Director of Cities and Regeneration at Rumble, thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. Up next, we head to New Zealand to look at indigenous architects and their effect on the urban landscape. Stay with us. Creating sustainable cities requires consideration, not just for the landscape, but also for the indigenous people that have sustained that landscape for centuries. New Zealand is often held as a shining example of a country that embraces its indigenous heritage, but statistics show the field of architecture in the country is still not representative and hardship among indigenous populations in cities is still disproportionately high. Recently, our own resident Kiwi, David Stevens, 
caught up with the Maori landscape architect Jacqueline Paul a few weeks before she relocated from Auckland to the University of Cambridge to pursue a master's in planning, growth and regeneration. Jacqueline discussed her upbringing, her work and the concept of identity in the built environment. But before all of that, we'll let her introduce herself. Tēnā tātou katoa, anō ngā tikahununu ki hire taunga, ngā tutu whare tō, me ngā puhi inoi tōnu, ingari inohoana au ki tāmaki makaurau, he he kaumahi rangahau Māori me ngā kaihua ko whenoa ki te whare wānanga o Wairaka, ko Jacqueline Tōkuingo. So kia ora, my name is Jacqueline Paul, I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I have ancestral ties on my father's side to the far north of Aotearoa, New Zealand, in Te Tai Tokirau. And on my mother's side, I have whakapapa, or ancestral ties, to the east coast in Kahununu and the central part of the North Island, which is Ngāti Tūwharetoa. That's Jacqueline Paul, a landscape architect from New Zealand, or Aotearoa as it's known to Māori, the indigenous people of the country. In 2018, New Zealand Institute of Architects President Christina Van Berhamen told the publication Architecture Now that although diversity figures on architecture in the country are hard to obtain, they know there are very low numbers of architecture graduates who identify as Māori. Although the number of Indigenous practitioners is low, it remains the responsibility of urban designers to uplift the Indigenous people of any nation. And as Jackie explains, in Aotearoa, that responsibility stems from the country's founding documents. The treaty, or what we would refer to in preference, is Te Tiriti or Waitangi. Probably the best way to kind of understand is that it's an agreement between the Māori or Indigenous peoples of Aotearoa and the Crown. And there's two versions, one in Te Reo Māori and another version in Te Reo Pākehā or English. And that's really made up of... <laughs> many different things depending on which version you read and that's just what we would say a founding document or living document of this nation and so anything that occurs within these lands across the nation should be anchored into Tiriti or Waitangi and that is the recognition and states within Te Tiriti is that you know Māori have chieftainship or sovereignty over their own kainga their lands and the places which they live in. So definitely anything that occurs on this land must include mana or people of this land. However, I would say that the way in which urban design has traditionally been practiced fails to uphold tetiriti. But I'm seeing, you know, this tide turning where because a lot of the shift in terms of policies and practice and decision-making processes are starting to anchor or understand the principles of tetiriti now people have to deliver right because our procurement services are changing our clients are more socially conscious so we would hope that our practitioners also start normalizing this process where they're working with maori and partnering in anything that we're working in so i think urban designers still got a, a long way to go and can be different depending on the scale as well as one of those people helping urban design to get there, Jackie's interest in architecture began in high school, but it's her lived experience that inspired her passion. 
growing up, I was really lucky because I'm based in Tamaki Makoto, which is commonly known as Auckland. We were really lucky as kids to travel home to our papakainga, where our home fires are and our ancestral ties are in the far north. And so we were really lucky to grow up there, travel back to our marae, which is a gathering place. And so because we've got such a significant relationship with our land there, not a lot of infrastructure or architectural form, really. And so that was kind of my initial understanding of the place of where I was from and what that looked like. However, through those experiences, it was really interesting just to see, I guess, my own family and my, or what we would say as whānau struggle on our own lands. And so there was a lot of displacement over the years and how that kind of continuously affected our family today. And so living in severe housing deprivation was one of them. And so because that was a challenge and an issue to me personally, I always thought about how architecture, and this view still continues to inform what I do today, is how architecture can be a tool to respond to poverty. And so that was kind of how that has informed my both personal and professional practice today. Also a researcher at Ngāwai Atetui, a Māori and Indigenous Research Centre at the Educational Institute Unitec, Jackie works to understand the evolution of some of the issues she's experienced firsthand. That's been really exciting to continuously understand Māori housing and what that looks like in this country in terms of where we've been, where we are at in our current realities, but also where we're headed. And so really thinking about some of those aspirations and how those can inform the generation of today and tomorrow. So it's really exciting to operate in an intergenerational environment by your own people, with your own people. And so really lucky to continue to do the mahi, or what we would say work there. And the result of that mahi, or work, has been the increased visibility in Aotearoa's built environment of tikanga Māori, which is often translated as the Māori way of doing things. Tikanga encapsulates everything from culture to customs to clothing styles. And if you know where to look, you can see examples of it in the built environment. The Otahuhu train station is a great example in South Auckland, which is a manifestation of different purako or stories developed and designed and with the community. And so they've got many different facades and it was really based on principles and really innovative initiatives in the way in which they procured services and employed our local communities, young people aspiring in the built environment. So. I'm seeing a lot of shift in the way in which the processes and practices change and how tikanga can inform that. And there were some really great partnerships, you know, with mana whenua, or we would say tribes who have authority over different lands or certain areas. And so because they've been involved in those processes and established those partnerships, they've been able to really deliver amazing built outcomes and been able to tell their stories in terms of the lands in which the architecture sits in and is connected to. So there's seeing some interesting kind of shifts in the way in which identity is starting to weave itself across the city. So that's been really exciting. Depending on the scale in which, you know, different people are interested, we might think about simple things like our maunga or mountain, protecting our maunga as a form of landscape architecture compared to on the other end of the spectrum, which might be high-rise apartments. So some interesting dynamics, but also opportunities, I would say, in terms of what that looks like for the future. 
But it's clear that what's important for progress is not just seeing your identity reflected in the built environment, but supporting your people through urban policies too. When I started kind of engaging in architecture and design, it was really me, myself, understanding why am I walking down the street of, say, Queen Street, main area in our CBD? Why do the people who live on the streets look like me, but not the, you know, architecture and the built environment? And so we always have this vision, right, where we want to see our faces and our places. And for me, that's a real equity issue. And so a lot of my advocacy work within homelessness is because it stemmed from a lot of the inequity within architecture. And I think even just in this country that we deserve, you know, public housing that literally centres equity and justice. And that's by housing our people. It's about reimagining what our housing stock looks like. So because a lot of my work is in housing and urban development, I would like to see a, a major push in this same thing for youth homelessness around major election policies. You know, we have the Prime Minister who has a child and youth strategy. And the vision for that is that New Zealand is, you know, the best place in the world for young people and children. However, half of the homelessness population are under 25. They're literally children and young people. So why aren't we building places, you know, whether it's houses, whether it's apartments, or any architectural developments and villages that accommodates and centres equity and justice. It's really difficult for me to understand that if architecture is a tool, you know, to respond and aid poverty, but the lack of political will on the other end, we've got a long way to go. And so whether it's an establishing, you know, a chief planner or chief architect of the state, which we don't have one, there's many different ways in which we could do this. So I would hope through policy change that it would centre equity and justice and architecture could be a part of that. Landscape architect Jacqueline Poole there in conversation with this show's producer, David Stevens. Well, that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, well, here's Talos with Landscapes. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Snap together in your landscape. We are heat stay.